This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. You may be seated, kids. You are dismissed to class. I'm sure somebody will be back there. Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone. We're going to be in John chapter 2 if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. John chapter 2, where this morning John's going to take us behind the scenes of a little wedding in a town called Cana. As we all know, weddings like any other important event are fraught with tension. They kind of ride that razor's edge between minor mishaps and, you know, complete disaster. It's because of all the pressure and the anticipation for things to go perfect. Like young men, listen, when it's your time to get married, just know you're going to see a side of your fiancé that you didn't know existed. Like, like when you realize how long she's been thinking about that day, you're going to wonder if she needs counseling or something. I mean, even, even if, let's say, you find that, that lovely young woman who says she just wants a simple wedding. Young men know this. Simple is just a code word that women use for perfect. So your job, when that day comes for you, No matter how many people get sick on the salmon pate, no matter how much water the wedding cake is floating in, no matter how drunk uncle so-and-so gets, your job is just to tell your wife she looks beautiful and you think everything is perfect. You might have to hold her down to say that to her, but that's your job. But no matter how perfect any wedding goes, one thing that every wedding has has in common is that eventually the, the excitement fades. Eventually the joy diminishes. Eventually, like, like every marriage, the wedding time fades and marriage just becomes work. And marriage aside, isn't that kind of like life in general? We all have these high points in life, these, these mountaintops, the, the successes and the, the marriages and the births and those kind of things. But eventually... I don't know, like the first time you get to pay taxes, the joy fades. Is that you this morning? Are you here in one of those valleys where it seems like no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to hold on to your joy? And I don't mean like you don't ever have a good time now and then or laugh at a joke. I'm talking about that deeper joy that makes life worth living. It makes getting out of bed worth it. If that's you this morning, or, or even if you just remember a time when you were there, what do you do? What do you do when nothing seems to be able to pull you out of that joyless rut? What do you do when that new car smell wears off of those things we look to for joy? Or worse, what do you do when, when something or someone seems intent on not just taking your joy, but keeping it. 
That's the question I want to answer this morning. What do you do when you've lost your joy? Let's look at John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and see if he has an answer for us. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tested the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this story in your word of a wedding in a small town called Cana, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us the, the beauty of your word, the grandeur of your word, the depth of your word, the truth and the light that is in it. Father, illuminate our hearts and our minds, unstop our ears. Show us, as we just sang, about every promise of your word, that it is true and useful and displays your glory, Father. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Now, I want to remind you of a couple of things, because John tells us this story about a wedding in Cana first. After his prologue, he had to decide, okay, which story am I going to tell them first? And he decided that this wedding in Cana was the first story we wanted to hear. Why is that? Well, first of all, remember, John tells us at the end of the book in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, that he recorded these signs or these miracles so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and thereby have eternal life. And I want you to remember that because John has structured his gospel around those signs, seven of them to be exact. In fact, if you just flip to your right, maybe a page or two, to the end of chapter 4, you'll notice in verse 48 begins the sign of Jesus healing the official son. And then in chapter 5, you'll see the sign of Jesus healing at the pool on the Sabbath or the man at the pool of Bethesda. If you flip maybe a little bit further, beginning of chapter 6, you'll see the sign of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and so on and so on. But you want to guess what was the first sign? That's right, it's our passage this morning where Jesus turned water into wine. This is the first sign that, that John offers us to believe that Jesus was the Christ. That's the first thing I want to remind you. Because I want you to see right out of the gate, 
Right out of the gate, John presents us with this first miracle of turning water into wine so that we would believe Jesus is who he says he is. Why is that? Well, because the second thing I want you to remember is that John's gospel is sometimes called the gospel of misdirection. Meaning, oftentimes in John's gospel, the circumstances in the story are about one thing, while, while something else is taking place between the lines. Remember, for example, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, we'll see this in a couple weeks, about being born again. Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about crawling back into his mother's womb, but Jesus was talking about spiritual rebirth. Or when, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in Samaria, she thought they were talking about H2O. Jesus is actually talking to her about the water of life. Again, oftentimes there's more to what Jesus is doing than might appear. So then, is there something in between the lines of this first sign about Jesus turning water into wine? Well, for millennia, for millennia, God had been promising to renew his creation. He had been promising to redeem Israel, to save them, to restore them back to a right relationship with him. But here's the thing. It had been several hundred years since they had even heard anything from God, much less seen anything done. By the time we get to this story in John chapter 2, nothing had been made new. Nobody had been restored. In fact, things had gotten worse. Like after their captivity in Babylon, they had been conquered and subjugated by at least two other countries, Greece and, and Rome. But flip back to the very beginning of John, chapter 1, verse 1. Because I want you to see what John is doing here. John chapter 1, verse 1. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, the fact that Jesus turned water into wine, that's amazing. That's, we don't want to look past that. that. That's an incredible thing. But I want you to watch because I want to show you the beauty of John's gospel. Jesus open, or excuse me, John opens this gospel by, by making this very clear connection to creation. He opens his gospel the same way as Genesis by saying, in the beginning. And then he says, the word who was with God and was God was there in the beginning, just like Genesis 1.1 says God was. And the first thing John mentions about this word was that he was the light of men that shines in the darkness, just like light was the first thing God created out of the darkness back in Genesis. And then he also mentions that this word created things. So all over the place in chapter 1, John is clearly making reference to some kind of new creation. Genesis 2.0. What does that have to do with this wedding in Cana? Well, in the past, when God had promised this new creation, 
All throughout the prophets, when God had promised this regeneration, there's something that was almost always mentioned as a marker. Something to look for. Something that was evidence of this coming restoration. Can you guess what it was? In Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, God is talking about this restoration, and he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. Listen, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and he and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. Here it is again. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And in Isaiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 7, the prophet said God would, would listen to this. He said, God would swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. This is what God's going to do on this day of restoration. He says in verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. What do you think, though, Isaiah said was going to be evidence of that day having come that they had waited for the Lord? Well, right before this, in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, he says this, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. In other words, brothers and sisters, that day of salvation these people had been waiting for for so long, it was always going to be marked by wine. Wine flowing out of the hills, a feast of well-aged wine, it was going to be this symbol that God's new creation has come, that day when He was going to wipe away tears and restore His people. So last week, after John left us kind of hanging, wondering what it was about Jesus that, that would cause the disciples to act the way they did, this week, the first sign, the first miracle John records of Jesus isn't the feeding of the 5,000. It isn't the healing of some man or some woman. It could have been, but it's not. But instead, lying just between the lines of this first sign of Jesus is John crying out to the people who have ears, this is it. Jesus is ushering in His new creation. Look, He just turned 180 gallons of water into wine. Wine's literally flowing out of the hills in Cana. In other words, brothers and sisters, when we have that question in our mind, what do we, what do, we do when we've lost our joy? The first thing we do is we believe. We believe that Jesus has ushered in a new creation. And we believe that, that, that He has brought this restoration that was so long promised. And we believe that we are part of it. We are part of the new creation. How is this new creation going to be accomplished? How was God going to do this? Because 
not only was God not going to just say, okay, I'm not mad anymore. But if I'm honest, I have to say sometimes I sure don't feel like a new creation. Look again at verses 3 through 5 in John chapter 2. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do what he tells you. Now, just to get this out of the way, that word woman is not a derogatory term in the Bible. Sounds like that to us, but that's not. A better translation might be something more like dear woman. Your translation might even say that. But the bigger point of this exchange between Jesus and Mary is this. Listen, when you go through the Gospels, what you'll see Jesus do quite often is is, um, make it clear that his family doesn't have an inside track. That his family doesn't somehow have dibs on his divinity. For example, on one occasion, some people came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. To which Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers but those here listening to me? On another occasion in Luke, uh, Jesus was talking to a crowd and someone yelled out of the crowd, Blessed be the womb that birthed you. To which Jesus said, Yeah, better that, that they listen to the word of God and do it. Blessed is that person. So, so Jesus would often go out of his way to make sure that we know that his family didn't have some kind of advantage. Which is why I love that Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Like, like she hears what Jesus is saying and she makes it clear to the servants, you do what he says, not what I say. If he decides to do something, do it. If he doesn't decide to do it, then do that. Don't listen to me, listen to him. So what did Jesus tell them to do? Well, look at verse 6. He said, now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some water and take it to the master. So they took it. So so when we ask ourselves how this restoration was going to take place, it has everything to do with these jars of water. You see, these jars were used for ritual cleansing because there were any number of reasons in that day that that a Jew might need to wash themselves ritually during the day. So so for a a big party, like a wedding, like this that lasted for days, they needed a lot of water to, to ritually wash not only themselves, but the utensils and all of that sort of stuff. But here's what's interesting. This is what I want you to notice. Jesus turned all the water into wine. All of it. Meaning there wasn't any left for their ritual cleansing. But more importantly, Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned with this. He's not like, oops, go get some more water. Why is he okay that they don't have any more water for ritual washing? Why is he okay turning all of their water into wine? And and I can tell you the answer is, is not because Jesus is okay with them being unclean. 
That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that he's okay with them being unclean, which means the only question left to ask is this. When would it be okay for the people not to ritually wash? When would Jesus be okay with someone not being clean, not being spiritually clean? The answer is obvious, isn't it? It's if they were already clean. Because one doesn't need to worry about washing if they're already clean. So so when we ask ourselves how this redemption was going to occur, how this new creation is going to be accomplished, in between the lines of this first miracle, Jesus is saying the new creation is going to happen when I make you so clean that you don't have to worry about washing again. Now, boys, that you do still have to take showers. That's not what Jesus is saying. Yes. This isn't a biblical excuse to not bathe. But, but, but how was that cleansing going to take place? Well, let's go a step further. What did Jesus say about wine at the Last Supper? Didn't he say, this, this bread, this is my body, which will be broken for you, and this cup, this cup of wine is my blood, which will be spilled for you? In other words, brothers and sisters, it's not a coincidence that Jesus turned all their water for ritual washing into wine. Because in this one miracle, Jesus is saying, I'm going to do away with all the purification rituals of Israel by one decisively new way of purification. When someone believes in me, Jesus is saying they will be perfectly and permanently purified through my blood. In fact, look at what John is saying. When you couple this idea of the wine and blood with the theme of creation, follow this. Back in chapter 1, look at verse 29. It begins with the next day. So what day was that? Well, if John's gospel begins on day 1, then this is day 2. Then in verse 35, John says the next day. That's day 3. Then in verse 43, John says, the next day, that's day four. And now, verse one of chapter two, it says on the third day, or it means the third day after that, which means what day is John saying this miracle that's pointing toward purification happened? On the seventh day, on the day when God rested from his work and told all the people that they should rest from their work. So so not only is Jesus saying that he's going to purify them, but but by doing this on the seventh day, he's also saying that what he's going to do is going to be rest for God's people from their work. Rest from the endless need to purify themselves every day, all the time. So when we ask that question, what do we do when we've lost our joy? The first thing we do is we believe that Jesus has ushered in a new creation. But secondly, we believe that he ushered in that new creation of rest by perfectly and permanently purifying us with his blood. We believe that Jesus was okay for there not being any water left 
because we are perfectly and permanently purified through his blood. There's one more very important aspect of this miracle that lies just under the surface. You see, wine wasn't just an Old Testament symbol for new creation. Meaning when John says they ran out of wine in verse 3, he's saying that they ran out of something else really important. You know, I love my daughters to death. I really do. They're very special to me. But doggone it if they are really expensive. I mean, I've only had to pay for two weddings, and I'll just say kind of hurt a little bit. Not that I had to give my daughters away. That hurt, but it hurt, it hurt the checkbook. Ouch. The thing is, is back then, weddings were a whole different thing. This was like the only time that they got to get together and have fun. It wasn't like us where we do that, you know, frequently. It was like two or three times a year. So, so immediately following what they would do, immediately following the wedding ceremony is the bride and the groom would be kind of like paraded through the streets back to their own home, which would begin a week-long kind of come-and-go party, like a stop-in, you know, hang-out-at-night kind of a party. But that was expected of the bridegroom back then. So to run out of wine was a big, big deal. In fact, it might even have had ramifications on the marriage if, if, the, if the bride's family took insult by him running out of wine or thought that maybe he couldn't support their daughter. It could have had big ramifications. So I want you to listen to what else the Old Testament says about wine. Because like I said, it wasn't just a symbol for restoration. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life. And Psalm 104, beginning in verse 14, says of God, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Why? So that they may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. In other words, not only did wine symbolize new creation in the Old Testament, but it also symbolized joy and gladness. Meaning, in a way, John is telling us this wedding, a lot like the lives of mankind, had run out of joy. They they were stuck under the rule of religious obligation. They they couldn't get out from from the rut of, of joyless ritual. And listen, nothing has changed. This is a a universal issue that still exists today. Since the fall of mankind, since Adam and Eve sinned and were thrown out of the garden, God's people have been cast into the joyless wilderness of, of sin and obligation. They've been thrust onto the, the endless hamster wheel of trying to find joy in the things of this world. And it never works. Ever works. It never works. In fact, one thing that statistics bear out every single time is the more one has, the more miserable they are. The more one looks for joy in the things this world has to offer, the more one finds out just how joylessly unsatisfying everything on this earth is. Just read Ecclesiastes. It's a vanity. 
It's pointless. So when we ask ourselves the question, it's the question that everyone faces at some point in their life. It's that nagging, defeating question. Why can't I find lasting joy? Why is joy like sand that just slips through my fingers the harder I try to hang on to it? The answer is, is that we believe not only has Jesus ushered in a new creation, and not only has He ushered in that new creation by permanently and perfectly purifying us with His blood, but we believe that Jesus has ushered in that new creation by purifying us with His blood, listen, in order to restore joy to the lives of His people. Joy that ran out. Jesus has ushered in this new creation to restore joy to the lives of His people. So how about you? Does your life feel like a new creation? Does your life feel like the rest that John is, is pulling together here in chapter 2? Can you just not wait to get out of bed in the morning? I know we're in church, so you know the right answer is yes, Grant, my life is perfect. liar because I think if we're honest with ourselves hearing something like this would lead to questions like well then why am I so tired why am I so worn out why can I not find joy why does life seem like such a drudgery why do I always feel like I'm missing something that I can't can't find. Why is that? Why do we so often feel that way? Well, the truth is, it's because of where we're looking for joy. It's because of where we're looking for joy. Listen, brothers and sisters, the reason we so often feel like we can't lay hold of joy is because like going to the dump to find groceries... We're looking for joy in the wrong place. It's because we're looking for, for rest and vacations and finances instead of Christ. It's because we're, we're still looking for purification by trying to be good enough. It's because we're, we're still looking to make our own new creation in which we think we'll find joy. We're trying to establish our own kingdoms, thinking that will make me happy. When our joy, listen, it's not in what we have. It's not even in what we do or, or, or how other people see us. That is not where joy is found. But it's why so many people, Christians included, are miserable. Because they're digging through piles of trash looking for joy. No, true rest and true joy is found, listen, in the truth that we have been eternally redeemed by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. So, so when we find ourselves in one of those moments where we, we feel like we've lost our joy, I want you to ask yourself this very simple question. When you feel like you can't lay hold of satisfaction and rest and joy, ask yourself this. 
What joy exactly do I feel like I've lost? What joy is it that I feel like I can't find? Where exactly am I looking to find this joy that I can't find? Ask yourself those questions. What is it that I actually think will satisfy that joy? Because I want you to see what John says about the joy we have in Christ. He says two things. First, look again at what he says about joy in verse 6 and 7. He says, Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, Fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. In other words, what John is telling us is not only did Jesus restore joy to the lives of God's people, but he restored abundant joy to the lives of God's people. To, to put what Jesus did into perspective, he miraculously created somewhere in the neighborhood of 900 bottles of joy. That, that, that joy would have lasted for years for this family. It probably would have even been a, a significant source of income for them. It was more joy than they knew what to do with. But, but second, not only is the joy he restored abundant, but look at verses 8 through 10. Jesus told the servants, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it came from, the servants did, but he didn't, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And after people have drunk freely, then the poor. But you, you saved the good wine until now. In other words, the joy that Jesus has restored to our lives, it's not only abundant, but listen, it's better than what the world has to offer. The wine that they served at this wedding wasn't just cheap wine. It was a wedding. I mean, they, they served good wine. And the master of the feast is like, wow, this is incredible. And Christ's joy is just like that. It's so much better than what this world has to offer. Brothers and sisters, when you find yourselves in those times when, when you seem to have lost your joy, ask yourself, where exactly is it that I'm looking for joy? Because the Bible's telling us that Jesus has ushered in a new creation by perfectly and permanently purifying us through His blood in order to restore not only abundant, but better joy to our lives. But can I be real for a minute? Can, can we talk about real life for a minute? Because what does that mean if, if we're good Christians and if we really believe in Jesus? And I'm not being facetious. I mean, honestly, we truly believe in Jesus. What does that mean? Does it, does it mean we'll always be happy and never have any problems? Like, what do we do when we truly believe that Jesus has, has restored joy to our lives, but we come, to face, we come face to face with really good, great hardship, hardship, persecution? We lose our job. Someone we love dies. Those times in life where depression even just seems to take over. Anything that's, that's legitimate and harsh. What do we do then? I know, let's do like other Christians and act like nothing's wrong, right? Let's walk into church wiping the tears out of our eyes saying, I'm good. Of course not. But here's what does happen. 
Here's how real life and this joy that, that Christ has bought us with his blood, here is how they weave together. The joy that Jesus has restored to our lives. The truth that he has made us a new creation by, by perfectly purifying us through his blood. That joy, it becomes the foundation on which we weep. It becomes the stronghold in which we suffer. It becomes the wings under which we find shelter. It becomes the truth in which we abide. So that like our brother Paul, we can honestly say that we live as punished yet not killed, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Listen, and as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Always rejoicing because the joy that has been restored to us, it's a joy that this world, no matter how hard it tries, it cannot take it away. In fact, it's a joy that the harder the world tries to take it away, the more it ends up driving us toward it. Which means, look, look at what God has done through this restoration of joy in the blood of Jesus Christ. Look what he's done in verse 11. John says, this, the first of Jesus' signs, he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. In other words, brothers and sisters, listen, Jesus is glorified when this world throws everything it can at us and it can't wipe the smiles off of our faces. Jesus is glorified when this world tries again and again and again to tell you you're not good enough. And we look it right back in the face and say, I know, tell me something I don't know. But Jesus was. Jesus is glorified when this world tries to steal our joy and it realizes that its efforts are, are, are useless because our joy is anchored in the throne room of heaven at our Savior's feet. And as hard as it pulls, it cannot take that away from us. Even through tears, our joys continue to exist because our Savior is where our joy is found. Our Savior, who in order to perfectly and permanently restore us to joy, purified us through His own blood. So here, here's what I have to ask. Who am I that I should know this treasure of such worth? My Savior's pure atoning blood shed for the wrath I'd earned. For sin has stained my every deed, my every word and thought, what wondrous love that makes me one your priceless bud, blood has bought. Oh, the precious blood that flowed from mercy's side and washed away all my sin when Christ my Savior died. Stand with me, please, and let's make that our response.